everybody, Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast, which is now on justthenews.com, a news website dedicated to facts, not spin, and reporting on underreported stories and views that cut across the grain. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and the other Just the News podcasts, John Solomon Reports, and The Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. Today I'm going to talk about coronavirus and information that I'll bet a lot of you haven't heard because it hasn't been widely reported. From the profile of who actually has died in the United States to the controversy over masks. And that's the kind of information I like to talk about most, information that's not been widely reported. I'll also give you some resources you can look up for yourself if you like. I want to start out by saying that the things I'm reporting in this podcast are true of general trends, but of course, the story is moving so quickly that if you want the very latest up-to-date figures, you need to go online, and one of the best places to go is cdc.gov. You will see if you go to that page, there's a whole coronavirus page that has additional links, resources, maps, numbers, and information. So what I'm reporting on is sort of a snapshot in time, but information that's true, as I said, about general trends. Point number one, it was recently reported that something like 60,000 people have recovered from coronavirus, trying to make the case that a lot of people, in fact, the vast majority of those who get coronavirus will recover. But actually, that number of recoveries is far, far greater than 60,000. That's a little misleading because, according to scientists, the vast majority of people who get coronavirus won't know they had it because their symptoms were either mild or non-existent. So the 60,000 number, the denominator, if you will, um, used when you're trying to calculate how many who get sick die or become seriously ill, the denominator is actually much larger than it could seem at first glance. Number two, let's look at those who have passed away in the United States and elsewhere because that profile is not being well reported. Most of them are, this part you may have heard, older adults, but also people who've had serious chronic medical conditions, according to CDC, heart disease, diabetes, and lung disease primarily. In other words, the sick and the weak and the immune suppressed among the elderly are those who are most vulnerable. And this does, according to scientists, spread quickly like the flu, but I think it is the testing that is leading to results that are alarming people. The testing is expanding. It doesn't mean the actual incidence is expanding at the same rate as the testing. Many of these cases are already out there, just have not been tested for and detected. It's been here for weeks, say scientists, but maybe even longer than we knew. More on that later. But back to the profile of those who have died, the U.S. Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, said, that the average age of death for people with a virus was 80. Average, not the highest. And so in the U.S., looking at the coronavirus deaths reported within the past couple of days, I wanted to get a profile of them, and it was somewhere around 30. It's gone a little bit higher since then, but looking at those 30-some-odd deaths, most of them were from Washington State, 25 of them, in fact. So really a cluster of deaths 
pretty much in one place in the United States after several weeks. 20 of the 25 from Washington State were from one nursing facility in Kirkland in Washington State. So if you look at it that way, the vast majority of those who passed away were really from one cluster in the United States, almost none anywhere else. Of the other cases, there were three reported in California. That included a woman in assisted living in her 90s, a 71-year-old man with underlying health conditions who'd been on the Grand Princess cruise ship, and a woman who'd already been hospitalized in Santa Clara who was in her 60s. So that's three more. Then the only others reported at the time were two in Florida, one in New Jersey, one in South Dakota. The two in Florida were people in their 70s who had traveled overseas. The one in New Jersey was a diabetic man, age 69, who suffered two cardiac arrests. And then there was a South Dakota man, age 60 to 69, with what scientists or experts called underlying medical conditions. Viewed in this context, what we're saying is that on average, people are at very, very low risk of serious illness, almost no risk of death. Most people will get mild or no symptoms. Almost all will recover. The vast majority of deaths are those in the 80s and older, and almost all of them had some combination of cardiovascular, diabetes, respiratory disease, high blood pressure. There's a good article about this at bbc.com. If you want to Google, I think you could find it by Googling BBC coronavirus death rate, what are the chances of dying? BBC coronavirus death rate, what are the chances of dying? There's also a really good article in Lancet involving the Chinese data, where this thing we believe originated and where they were hit the hardest. You can find this, I'm going to talk about it in just a moment, but at thelancet.com, but you could search online for early epidemiological analysis of the coronavirus disease. And what this study found, this published study, is the death rates were lowest for those under 30, of course, in China. Of course, we've had none here in the U.S. as of this recording, but in China. There were eight deaths among the young under 30 out of 4,500 cases in China. And deaths were at least five times more common among people with diabetes, high blood pressure, or heart or breathing problems. Makes sense. That's true here in the U.S. too. And there was a slightly higher number of deaths among men compared to women. Now, in China... The median age of patients who had died at the time of this study was 70 years old, and they said that there was a what they called a deficit of infections among children. Same thing here in the United States. Okay, another point that few people are talking about was the mask controversy. Remember, a lot of people were scrambling for masks, and the government was saying, don't wear a mask if you're a healthy person because it doesn't work and we need to save them for healthcare workers. That's been modified a little bit depending on who you listen to. Some say the masks do work, but they're really not terribly needed unless you're in close contact with somebody that you know or that has coronavirus. But in any event, everyone agreed there's sort of a mask shortage. And there were officials estimating the U.S. only had like 1% of the masks needed for health workers and case of a full pandemic that hits us hard. So early on in this, a couple of weeks ago, the Trump administration and mask makers wanted to add a provision to the emergency spending bill for coronavirus that would protect certain mask manufacturers if the wearers get sick while wearing them. 
And these were masks that aren't made for medical use, that are used for other things, but for at least this emergency could be used and somewhat effective for health reasons. And here is Senator Tom Cotton talking to me recently about the issue of the masks and how there was an attempt to get them protection from liability so that these sort of industrial masks could be used for medical purposes, but initially that didn't work out. There was a little behind-the-scenes intrigue I didn't know about the coronavirus and something that was in the funding bill. Apparently there was supposed to be some funding for masks or for the mask industry? So there's supposed to be a provision that would provide legal immunity for mask manufacturers to sell industrial quality masks to medical distributors. So um, we make many more industrial masks in this country than we do medical masks. Is that like stuff people would wear for paint? Painting, construction, that kind of thing. Uh, it's not suitable for uh, exposure to bodily fluids. So like a traumatic sur- or a trauma surgeon, an ER wouldn't use it. But for a respiratory illness like the Wuhan virus, it's totally suitable. Uh, unfortunately, the Democrats originally blocked this in the supplemental spending bill at the behest of trial lawyers who want to be able to sue everyone for everything, even in an emergency. So we've been working to try to get the bill passed this week, either by itself or attached to other legislation, because the difference could be tens of millions of masks available for doctors and nurses by the end of April. And the last thing we want to have is a shortage of masks, because that's what protects our medical professionals. You know, we can make more clinical tests. We can find more quarantine sites but we cannot create a new doctor or a new nurse overnight. So we have to protect them at all costs. That was Senator Tom Cotton. And since then, there's been word that the mask issue has been worked out. We will see if that gets passed in a final sense and if the masks are needed, but that's where things stood at the time. My next point has to do with whether coronavirus like some other viruses, is expected to die out when the weather gets warmer and stays warmer. Because this has not been well addressed in the news, I think. It's almost as if coronavirus is discussed like it's here to stay for the next X months or years. So I was talking to a lot of different people behind the scenes and also some on camera in the last few days asking this question about whether Members of Congress, for example, are being briefed by experts at CDC as to whether coronavirus could simply die out on its own in the coming weeks. First, you're going to hear from Lindsey Graham, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, as to what he said and what he was briefed about on this point. Have you been briefed and told from a scientific standpoint that this will run its course after winter is over? People don't really know, but viruses usually do. The flu is in a cycle. 30-something thousand people a year die from the flu. We've absorbed that in our daily lives. Uh, We take flu shots. They work sometimes. Sometimes they don't. The uh, coronavirus is something new and exotic. It's like a plane crash versus a car wreck. You don't have international coverage of car wrecks, but when a plane crashes, you do have uh, coverage. So it's going to be a topic that's going to be in the news. Uh, I think to be realistic is what we need to do. It is spreading. Do what you can as an individual to protect yourself. As they work on a virus, we're trying to contain the spread. Uh, As the economy begins to slow down and lock down in certain areas, 
we need to stimulate it. I don't think a payroll tax cut is the right way to go. I think what we need to do is help industries that are the most affected by the lack of travel, and that will be hospitality and tourism. That was Senator Lindsey Graham. I asked a similar question of Senator Ron Johnson, who is head of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, and talked to him about whether the idea of this all sort of dying out of its own accord in the coming weeks or not has any merit. Here is Senator Johnson. My hope is long term that this burns out during general flu season. We're a little concerned because it did take hold in, in Singapore, but and that's a pretty controlled society. So I, haven't, I really don't know the f- numbers on that, but that is a concern that it was in Singapore. But, but hopefully this does die out and we can get a better handle on it. Have you been led to believe that once the weather turns warmer, it may kind of the, the, there, There's really no evidence that that's going to happen. It's, it's a hope. It's, it's generally a pattern with viruses. Again, when you're, when you're kind of cooped up and you're inside, it's just different than when you're, you're outside and it's warmer weather and the virus doesn't, you know, viruses frequently don't survive as, as well in outdoor conditions and, you know, with, with sunlight. So uh, you were just talking about the benefit of sunlight before we sat down here. So it's a good disinfectant. That was Senator Ron Johnson, head of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. The next point I want to talk about has to do with the fact that some traffic has been stopped into the United States from Europe and other places, but there's another concern that as of the date of this podcast has not yet been addressed. And I'm going to talk about that right after a short break. Welcome back. This next point about coronavirus has to do with the fact that experts are saying there is no well-understood process on how to control all the exposure to and by people legally crossing our northern and southern border every day. And it is a huge amount of traffic, as Congressman Henry Cuellar described when I spoke with him about it. His district, by the way, in Texas, includes the border town of Laredo. You know, CBP will handle about a million crossings every day, uh, northern, southern border. Uh, You take all the crossings that we have in trade and tourism, and let me just give you a snapshot. Laredo, Texas, 14,000 trailers a day crossing uh, north and southbound. Uh, Number one in trucks, number one in trains, 24 trains uh, that cross uh, north and south. Uh, we get about 150 buses, so you got about 50 to 55, maybe a little bit more, people that are crossing over, people that will cross over, go to the malls, go to the, uh, um, uh, to the you know, restaurants, hotels, and all that, uh, interchanging with our folks. Not saying that there, there's anything wrong with Mexico, but I'm just saying, what, what do you do when there's large number of crossings? Are the men and women at the front line ready to, one, uh, make sure they're protected, Two, are they able to detect or their medical folks that they have here? So, you know, what you and I have been talking about, every time there is a situation like this, and we've seen this with SARS, Zika, uh, Ebola, and other ones, uh, it looks like we start from scratch. Where is the nat- national strategy? Where is the, the, the preventive work that we should be doing? Uh, and what happens to the literally hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that we set up to be ready for an emergency? Uh, It's interesting. I I remember Sika. I remember some of the other ones, Ebola. It's like starting from ground zero 
all the way to where we are. And we've seen the same thing. Where is the national strategy to be ready for situations like this? That was Congressman Henry Cuellar. My next point has to do with the fact that regardless of what everybody, including the best experts, say they know at a given time, this is a moving target. There has been a lot of addition of information or correction or modification of the things they thought they knew as time goes on. So probably not very much should be taken as if it is something that is decided and will never be modified. For example, they've modified the amount of time they think this virus can stay on surfaces. They've, amount, they've modified the amount of time that they think it can survive in the air. They, I believe, have modified the distance at which they think the particles can travel between people. They've modified the what they think is the incubation period, how long it can be sort of in your system without you having symptoms of it. So just keep that in mind and look for new information as they seem to develop it. A word now from Senator Tim Scott, who is like quite a few people I talk to, although again, I don't get this message much on the news, where it seems to be a consensus that we will get our arms around this, as he says. It's not something most people seem to think anyway that is going to expand into a killer epidemic in the United States, um, something to the likes of which we've never seen before. So while they say it is correct to be careful and prudent and concerned, I'm not sure that the panic that some people are feeling or spreading around is warranted by the facts. Here is Senator Tim Scott. I am also cautiously optimistic that we're going to get our arms around this and, and keep, keep it there. But we should expect when you go from testing thousands to testing millions that there are going to be more people that are coming up positive for the virus. The, the, that's the bad news. The good news is there are a lot of things that we can do to reduce it. And if you're under the age of 60, the chances of it being a crisis is very low. Over the age of 60, there's a lot of things that you can do to prepare yourself and to make sure that you are out of harm's way consistently. My next point is the question of whether people who have had coronavirus are then immune to it, basically not going to get it again. And that was not an easy answer to find, actually, because it hasn't been discussed much. But the answer, according to Dr. Fauci of the National Institutes of Health, is yes, experts believe it is very unlikely that people who've had coronavirus will get it again. He told Congress in testimony that it acts like any other virus, meaning once you've gotten it and recuperated, you are believed to be immune. I'm sure there are incidents or cases in which that may not be true, but in general, he says they expect that to be the case. And think about this. Experts say, when I asked, including one who works for the government but did not want to be identified by name, that this virus has likely been around longer than we thought, that it's unlikely we caught the very first case of coronavirus that existed, or the very first case of coronavirus that came into the United States. So, it has logically been around for an undetermined amount of time, longer than we've known, possibly, said one expert who I spoke with, even late last year, such as November in the United States. So if you had a fever, something that felt like a bad cold and cough, who knows? In fact, I spoke with a friend today who takes cruise vacations all the time. 
And she told me that she got very, very ill um, at the end of a cruise in January and had all the symptoms that they discussed with coronavirus, including her fever, and she thinks she had it. Who knows? So I just think that's an interesting point. The last point I'm going to discuss today has to do with it being unclear as as to why certain infectious diseases or other diseases that aren't infectious get some attention and others don't get the same attention. And I'm just raising that as a point. I don't have a conclusion or an answer as to why this is. I just think it's interesting. For example, the autism epidemic in the United States, not caused by infectious disease, but extremely serious, now impacts one in 40 children in the United States. That is the biggest and most persistent epidemic I can think of in our time. But the main thing the government has done is to tell everybody to stop investigating links to vaccines and autism, even while secretly acknowledging that vaccines may cause some cases, and they've even paid damages in cases of vaccines causing injuries in children that ended up with autism. You can look at the latest stats on autism. There's a good article reporting the latest government figures at researchautism.org. You could search under New Studies Estimate Autism Prevalence at 1 in 40. New Studies Estimate Autism Prevalence at 1 in 40. But let's talk about an infectious disease, swine flu. That set off a panic in 2009, but even then, there were no broad quarantines or school dismissals. And not to mention, it turned out, as I've reported, there was not even an epidemic as advertised. I used Freedom of Information requests to go to all 50 states to get lab test results when CDC would not make them public and learned that almost none of the cases that were presumed most likely to be swine flu were actually swine flu. You can find my CBS News investigation from that time by searching swine flu cases overestimated. Swine flu cases overestimated. I have a couple of graphs there that show lab test results. I think in one case... Only 1% of the presumed swine flu cases in a state was actually swine flu. Only 1%, 99% was not. What about enterovirus D68, EVD68, and AFM paralysis? This double duo of problems that emerged in 2014 in the U.S. sickened and paralyzed, like polio, hundreds of U.S. children, But not only did CDC not give it much publicity, they wouldn't do an interview with me. They wouldn't provide basic information. I had to go to court to get them to answer my Freedom of Information Act request for for information and material about this problem. To this day, many people don't know about it. So it's just a reminder that it is always wise to do your own research, make up your own mind, and think for yourself whether you're looking at coronavirus or anything else. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and the other podcast from Just the News, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Please share generously. Don't forget to review the program and rate it. And I will see you next time.